Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast, where I bring you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. This is Ryan Tansom, your host, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome back to the Life After Business Podcast. This is Ryan Tansom here. Today's guest name is Diane Ross Hansen. Diane is the owner of Exit Planning Strategies and I met her a long time ago actually when my dad and I still own our company and Diane has been one of the pioneers in the state of Minnesota in the exit planning industry and she has got some very, very unique technical expertise that I really wanted to dive into. So today I was super excited to have her on the show because we dive into key employee incentive programs. So we talk a lot about how a family transition might work, how to retain and motivate your key executives. And I think the biggest takeaway is that you don't just have to write checks because entitlement happens and that doesn't last a long time. How to make sure that your incentive programs, whether it may be stock, phantom stock, whether it's cash, whatever it might be, is aligned directly with your exit objectives and should, if designed properly, increase your EBITDA and then increase your multiple when you decide to sell because you've de-risked your company and making sure that that next level bench will continue to carry the torch no matter who your successor might be. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. This episode of Life After Business is sponsored by The Valley Advantage. The Valley Advantage is a platform delivered via peer groups and or one-on-one to help you build a valuable company that can thrive without you while putting an exit plan in place so you have the options to sell when you want, to who you want, for how much you want. You're able to manage the business by the numbers, work in the business as much or as little as you want, and you fully understand how the business impacts your personal financials. If you want to know more, check out the show notes or the website. So without further ado... Here's the episode with Diane. Good morning, Diane. How you doing? Good, Ryan. How about yourself? Doing good. I'm uh, pretty happy that you're on the show. I'm excited for today's topic because I think it's a topic that a lot of owners want to dive into and probably have a little bit more clarity from uh, someone with the skills that you do. And for our listeners' sake, if you can kind of just give us a little bit of a backdrop on your experience, because you've been in the uh, exit planning industry for a long time, but maybe just give us a little bit of insight on how you ended up in the industry and how you uh, came to where you are today. Sure. Thank you. First of all, thank you for having me. I do appreciate it and look forward to hopefully sharing some wisdom for, for you as well as your listeners. Um, I started exit planning strategies in 2005 after working with owners a number of years on, oh, qualified retirement plans, business continuity, that type of thing. And it dawned on me, not dawned, but I realized in working with them that very few had actually given any concrete thought to how am I going to get out of this business? Um, so exit planning strategies was really born out of a perceived need and a realistic one to help educate owners on how it is they can develop intentional plans for ownership transition. Uh, they, they're, they're looking for something that is not a product solve. It, it's, it's, uh, outcome agnostic is how I like to describe it and basically just gives some education and direction for them to take control over what for many is going to be the single 
greatest, most important financial decision or move that they'll face, which is transitioning ownership in their in their company. So since 2005, I've been having lots of fun working with people and meeting qualified colleagues like yourself. Yeah, you know, and and it's really exciting that we're um, able to able to do this show because you and I met when my dad and I had our business. So you've been uh, kind of a pioneer in it and uh, <laughs> the Twin Cities for sure. And I and your technical expertise is why I think that we're going to be able to shed some light on some of the, the 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 subject for today, which is the key employee compensation incentive programs that mm-hmm. adhere to the transition to key employees and or keeping them and keeping it like making sure that they stay throughout a transition, all the different ways that you can structure this. And I think from my experience, from our old business and a lot of owners that I know, there's a lot of, like you had mentioned, there's a lot of people pushing products or certain things mm-hmm. to drive them into um, into a specific situation. And there, then there's a total opposite where there's a lot of owners that just quickly give equity without any thought behind right. it. So you know, before we dive into some of the, you know, the specifics, why don't you kind of just, you know, in, in your, uh, in a two sense, what is the general observation that you've got that is the, the major problem around the key employees and the importance that they have? Sure, sure. Well, in, in working with owners on their ownership transition, you and I both know that the direction that they're headed, whether it's going to be an internal transition or whether or not it's going to be in what what I refer to as a third party transition, a financial or a strategic buyer, the reality is is that um, as they as an owner prepares for that inevitable transition, they recognize the importance of building as much value in the company as they can. And while there exists a number of different value drivers, including, you know, operating systems that support sustaining cash flow, uh, operating margins at or above industry margin or industry averages, diversified customer base, solid growth. Probably I, I share with owners that, in my opinion, one of the most important value drivers in any organization is rewarding and retaining a key bench. Mm -hmm. And when I say that, you know, that can be one person, depending upon the size of the company, it can be two, it can be 10, it can be 15. But rewarding and retaining key personnel is what I truly do believe one of the most important value drivers, regardless of the direction of the transition for the owner. Oh, I I couldn't agree with you more. And that's coming from personal experience too, because when, uh, when we were passed up uh, from Xerox doing this roll-up back in 0809, it was because we did not have a bench. And I, you know, I think there's a lot of different problems that are tied into this key employee or the executives because it's one of the major factors to get you out from the hub and spoker as the you know the right. sole practitioner. But I think there's this catch-22 because they cost a lot of money. And so I think you know when we kind of dive into this, we can, uh, hopefully you can shed some light on how you can see those returns when you're investing. Oh. And I oh, know absolutely. that uh, like us personally, we spent, I want to say it was probably close to a quarter million dollars on recruiting fees to get our bench up to, huh. up to snuff before we sold. So, um, you yeah, know, just, I, a, just a note, Ryan, I always say too, and you can probably relate to this, is, is that... I, I advise owners among many things is that probably the the most important thing you can concentrate on 
is working your way into employment insignificance. <laughs> yeah. Right. And what a great, what a great situation too. <laughs> <laughs> but no, and, and cost I'm, I'm completely prepared because quite frankly, and you'll, you'll, you'll find this. Uh, another thing that I advise owners is, is that these key employee incentive plans aren't an additional line item on your balance sheet or on your income statement. If properly designed, they're being completely funded through increased profit. Yep. Yep. So um, then there's a lot of ways I want to dive into that. But um, as we kind of tee it up, you know, let's say because a lot of the people that I've talked to, they're in the midst of trying to find, you know, some of these key employees. And um, one of the things that I realized through some of our mistakes was not having our stuff together to present to these key employees because if they're the right people, they're going to be asking the right questions. So, you know, I don't know if there's some, uh, you know, some insight you can say like where in the process, whether it's you have the employees or you're about to find them, where do you see that designing these plans um, is the right time? Um, you know, it when it comes to the development of a incentive plan, timing I always say the sooner the better. You know, you wait until, or the owner waits until they're already negotiating with a with a potential buyer and their opportunity for uh, retaining their key employees is, is going to be based on sharing probably proceeds from the sale. Mm-hmm. Um, timing in my, in my opinion, I will always advise if you don't, if you don't currently, if an owner doesn't currently have a key employee incentive retention plan, they are, they, they should, they're behind the eight ball. It's a little bit like that saying that when is the best time to plant a tree? 30 Uh, years ago. (laughs) Yeah. 75 (laughs) years ago. And and the second best is today. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, uh, before we kind of solve this problem, there's, I see a lot of problems. The two different main situations where they hire a key employee without yep. having a plan to present to them. What are some of the problems you see if they do not, when they're in the middle of having this hiring process, if they don't have a plan in place? Well, I think, you know, when it distinguishes between your your uh, rank and file, if you will, and then what we call key performers or key catalysts. Key catalysts, if, if, a, if an owner is recruiting, are generally going to want some type of uh, pl- program that that shares in what they perceive to be value enhancement performance. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, key catalysts, key performers, oftentimes as you're recruiting and, and as owners are interviewing, they're going to ask, do you have a plan? And if so, what does it look like? Now, we'll, I'm sure, get into this, but one of the cautions that I always share with owners is be very careful in offering a compensation plan that includes equity as a portion of it mm-hmm. before a recruit has proven their value. Mm-hmm. My, my rule of thumb is, you know, you can build out financial incentive, but be very, very careful not to uh, dilute equity at least until after a two-year period. Well, and there's so many ways you can step into those, right, with the with the right performance metrics. And and I right. think you know 
some of the other complications with giving equity right away is you know when you get to a potential buyer, you're right. all of a sudden you have to consult with absolutely it, even if it is a minority share, correct? Right. Oh, absolutely. You know, and that's one of the things that a lot of owners they fear, but they also don't understand is is that a minority owner has not only rights to the financial, but voting rights. They've got. Uh, they, they even have in some states what's referred to as a duty of loyalty and care where a minority owner can challenge the owner on what they perceive to be self-serving compensation. You know, the country club memberships, mm-hmm. the RVs and recreational, uh, you know, e- uh, equipment, etc. Yeah, minority owners, I, I, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm careful because I know a lot of listeners out there may fall into this area, but I, I always say that minority owners are, are the ones that help make litigation attorneys rich. <laughs> I believe that. <laughs> kind of seen a little bit of that in myself. <laughs> so, and you know, I, I think where we want to go with this is a lot of, a lot of, you know, even back in, you know, I'll kind of tee it up with my own story where, so here's the conversations, whether it's a, a family member or, a, you know, you have this bench that's there or you're starting to build it. And my dad and I used to always have this conversation. He goes, well, why do I want to just give you part of my cash flow stream? <laughs> and it's like, I don't want it. So there's this constant, like, I want to earn it. He wants to give it, but like, in what ways do you give it? How do you put the metrics together? So I if you can kind of probably split it into a couple of different chunks, but what are the most common ways that you see the structure beginning and how do you start those conversations? You mean, you mean of the, uh, designing the key employee incentive or yeah, cause you know, like the, if you're just as is, and let's say you're, let's say someone's making a half a million dollars in EBITDA yep. and the owner goes, well, I'm not just going to give my cash flow to okay. my key employee because okay. that's just charity and I'm not in the business yep. of charity. But then I also believe that, the key executives or family members should want to get into the business by earning it. So uh, there's a lot of different ways to structure, but I don't know if you can kind of just shed some light on the the common ways that uh, our people go down. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, um, that sentiment that you described of the owner saying, you know, why should I be just voluntarily (laughs) dispersing my EBITDA? You know, I'm the one taking all the risk and everything else, which brings me to the very first of four key design variables that I encourage when developing an, an incentive retention plan for key, for key persons, personnel. The first is exactly addresses what you just brought up. And that is, is that, okay, first of all, we've identified who those key people are. We've also acknowledged the fact that if we were to lose them to a competitor, it's going to have a financial impact to our organization. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the very first uh, design element in any type of incentive plan is to build a benchmark of some sort. I like to encourage a financial benchmark that when obtained will then um, correlate to an award earned. So having some type of a benchmark. So for example, in the, in, 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 and, you know, when you talk about benchmark, it can be, it can be performance based. I like financial based, quite frankly, because it's just so much easier to identify, validate, confirm, etc. And it can be 
whatever the owner determines. So and not again, just to- sorry to interrupt, but and don't do yeah. top line revenue because we had that for oh. one of our old GMs, and he sandbagged a bunch of bad deals to hit some benchmarks. Oh my gosh! Well, you and I and every owner listening knows uh, <laughs> top line revenue means nothing. <laughs> right. I, I shouldn't say that, but. In, in, there are some industries where it's important, but top line, yeah. yeah. So, so if you've got a, if you've identified a benchmark, let's say it's, uh, and again, this can be as unique to the organization as they choose. But maybe let's say the owner says, "All right, well, I have to have a certain amount of EBITDA in order to just operate this business. So, if we can increase it by any amount." I'm going to take X percentage of that increase over that base requirement. And for example, I'm going to take 10% of it, 20% of it. I'm going to set it aside in a pool. And then that pool is what's going to be used to finance this incentive plan. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it can be as unique as you care. Um, Some will say, you know, I have to have a certain base. Others will say, you know what, if we increase it, our net profit or EBITDA at all, I'll take X percentage of it and set it aside in this pool. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, one of the things that you'll hear me say is, is, is it's gotta be a win win. Right. It's a win for the owner because the, the plan is funded through, should be funded through increase in profitability. Right. Right. Yeah. And if the profit's not there, there's not a benefit. Right. And quite frankly, and quite frankly, one other thing I'll throw in is is that with a financial benchmark and having that communicated, it it avoids the entitlement mentality that's so rampant in most companies mm-hmm. with key employee bonuses. Yep. Yeah. Like, hey, I you know we won that big customer. Give me money. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, yeah, well, and I think you hit on a couple really good points because you know if you go from 500 in EBITDA, then you go to 550. That 550 yep. you wouldn't have otherwise minus right. their efforts. It's sweat equity, right? Right, right, and that's what motivates their performance or the their behavior. And of course, as you might suspect, they have to have the ability to impact that bottom line as well. Mm-hmm. And it, and if I'm assuming as you're designing these, once you have those in place and they don't hit the benchmark, you've got contingencies, should they, I mean, it's just like any other kind of sales comp plan where the, if you hit it, you know, you miss a couple months, but then you hit the quarter or something like that, you know, there's yeah. different ways you can structure it. Correct. And you know, when I talk, Ryan, about the incentive plans, it's it's appropriate to make a deter, uh, distinction between short-term incentive and long-term incentive. Mm-hmm. The short-term obviously being something that like you had just referred to, maybe you know, quarterly, semi-annual, annual. The the longer term incentives are the the type that are used to uh, per, uh, um, motivate long term loyalty, as well as potentially morph into ownership transition. Which again, we'll save until we get a little bit later. But when I'm discussing the incentive retention, I am primarily referring to the long term incentive okay. plans. So then once you get this financial benchmark and you what's the second step then that once you kind so, of determine Yeah. And 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 the second step or the second design variable after the uh, some type of a benchmark is identified the second one is we have what I do is and what any advisor in this space is going to do is say okay we've got the benchmark now let's gain a projection cash flow projection of what that might look like based based on our best guesstimates so that we can then identify what that 
annual award might look like. Now, remember, we're not guaranteeing, but we have to project it because we have to be able to communicate to the key key person, well, here's what this plan is going to potentially give you. And, and the reason I say this is because in today's environment, unless this incentive retention plan can produce the possibility of 25% of salary or more on an annual basis, it's not going to incent the type of behavior or loyalty that an owner generally is looking for. So the second um, design variable is, is that the potential award has to be significant. And by that, what I'm seeing in the industry, a minimum of 25%, you know, you can go 20, but 20, 25% at minimum of annual salary. Mm -hmm. So, um, and I'm assuming this is probably the next couple variables, but um, what is the incentive, right? So whether there's a lot of different ways you can give in the what. So I don't know that if you've already touched on that or if you've if that's in the other ones or if it's coming. I'm just kind of curious. Well, and the 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 first the first design variable is is having an identifiable benchmark. The mm -hmm. second criteria or the second design variable must have is that based on projections, the benchmark has to produce the potential mm -hmm. for substantial award. Yep. The third the third and, and a very neglected design element that I find is that some percentage, and in fact, in my opinion, not less than 50% of that annual award, and ideally more, has got to be deferred until a future payout. Mm -hmm. So you come up with the uh, you come up with the formula. You project it out. Yes, it's going to hit the mark. Now the determinant is of that annual award. How much is a pure cash outright, if any, yep. and how much is deferred? Mm -hmm. And then the amount that's deferred is then subject to if the owner chooses a vesting schedule. Mm -hmm. And that vesting schedule, unlike the qualified retirement plan, can be whatever you have. It can be you know, a certain percentage per year. It can be what they call cliff vesting, where there's no vesting up until, you know, year five or six or seven. So if the key employee leaves for some reason prior, they relinquish the full deferred account balance. Mm -hmm. And you could probably tie in even a per percentage of that deferred to a stay bonus. Or something. I absolutely Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, and I'll just mention it because we're, you know, the, the benchmark a, it's got to have the potential of being substantial. It's got to have at least half of it deferred and subject to the potential of a vesting schedule. And the last, believe it or not, I know it sounds kind of sim simple, but it's communicating the plan. You know, you'd be, you'd be, I know yeah. it sounds kind of silly, but you would be amazed. I had one client who says, you know, you know, we went through the whole thing where we designed the plan, we projected it, yep, it met all that. We did 100% deferral because they already had a cash bonus that he paid. And then I said, okay, so, you know, now the key element is to bring this group together to identify the fact that they have been individually selected to participate in this plan. And, oh, by the way, the reason you're here is because, A, we acknowledge the substantial value that you bring to this company and its success. And we want to share in that success with you. So here's how this plan is going to work. You would be amazed <laughs> at what impact 
that communication has on the success of the plan. And for owners that say, ah, they, they don't need to know, you know, we'll just let them know, they fail. They don't work. Mm-hmm. So the communication piece is the final four of mm-hmm. four design variables that is absolutely essential. Well, and then like, you know, when you think about, and this is just uh, a little insight into our story where, so I had no non-compete. So this kind of ties into probably some of how yeah. you architect the design. So I had yeah. no non-compete and I was, you know, running the, the operations at the end where had we not been family, my dad and I worked on a handshake because I had no equity, but we figured out what my payout would be. And that all worked out because of our communication and the fact we're family. But if I would have been just a random key executive, I could have essentially either sabotaged the deal or oh, pretty absolutely. much blackmailed for a certain payout. And I wouldn't have had to have to stay, which means that that's why the deal would have fallen apart. So there's so right. much, so much to lose. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and if an owner finds themselves in a negotiated sale and hasn't uh, yet developed some type of an incentive, as you know, uh, you know, that lifetime stay bonus is certainly a plan that uh, is still well worth the initiative. Um, and all it is, is in a nutshell, is is promising some percentage of the sale proceed or some percentage of salary paid um, at intervals up to 18 to 24 months after the sale. Because a buyer, especially a financial buyer, is going to be looking for low risk to the cash flow uh, sustainability. So they want to know that that key employee bench is going to stay. So sharing a lifetime Stay bonus is certainly a uh, kind of a last ditch effort, if you will, for mm-hmm. those owners that haven't developed a plan earlier. Yep, yeah. And so, as we kind of think about, um, so the the there's cash, there's non-voting shares, there's equity, there's yeah. you know ways you can fund it with insurance and all these different things. And I think if we can maybe split it into kind of two different categories, because I think there's. A, two different buckets that a lot of people fall into where one is a family situation and another one is key executives that are non-family related. And um, the reason I'm bringing this up is because I just know that if a family has enough money and they want to be gifting it, there's a whole different way and strategy to do it than if it was just, you know, a normal key executive. So I don't know if you can kind of, what are the different ways that you can give the what, you know, the percentages of what? Yeah. Um, and, and you bring up a great point. And in fact, um, in family owned businesses, I think the this whole issue of key employee incentive is so critical because you know this too. Uh, when you were in business, um, even though you are helping run the company, as you very well recognize, you're, you can't do it alone. Right. You've got you've got other personnel there, key personnel that without whom um, there's no way you could do it by mm-hmm. yourself. And yet, as a family-owned business, you know, the idea of having, again, non-family equity shareholders is just, you know, not very palatable either. So, you know, when it comes to developing a plan between family versus non-family, you know, that whole discussion, and you brought that up, you know, once you've got the design, the how is the award earned, Um, and all that other type of thing, the the next question that the owner has to address is, do I want this to be a stock-based incentive plan or a Mm cash-based? And what I will tell you from my experience is is that the vast majority, and when I say that, I mean 85% of incentive plans is going to be cash-based. 
And the reason for that, again, we can talk about. But if the owner is looking for a way of gradually transitioning ownership to a family member, that's where I see cash-based bonuses used. Or I'm sorry, stock-based bonuses Mm -hmm. used. And they can be voting, they can be non-voting, they can be restricted shares, they can be stock options. The other place I see stock options very prevalent is in the IT industry where, you know, rapid, rapid growth and and third-party sale is imminent. Um, But for the most part, the cash-based, which can include the deferred compensation, it can include uh, phantom stock, which looks and acts like equity but isn't. Uh, stock appreciation, it can be performance units, it can be supplementary executive benefits, restricted executive benefit plans. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your question, but I, I in family-owned businesses, cash-based makes most sense. Also, where the owner is not interested in giving meaningful percentage, uh, cash-based is appropriate. Where the key employee really would prefer cash than ownership in a minority company. Mm-hmm. Well, and you'd uh, actually, in that one scenario, we actually had uh, uh, someone we were talking to where, you know, if you give them the option to have some non-voting, you know, uh-huh. equity, and they say, no, I'll take cash, that just uh-huh. shows you how that, that actually that individual might not be someone you want to transition the business to because they don't have the right. entrepreneurial risk or right. long-term view because they want to vote this year. <laughs> right, right, right. Right. Absolutely. So let's take it because I know you you listed off a bunch of stuff and I think it's important because all the things that you listed are all the different ways you can structure these. But, you know, one of the things that I tell anybody is that if you've got the time, money and energy, tell us what you want or finally get what you want on paper because you can technically reverse into it. And I don't know if you want to maybe because I like the phantom stock option, the deferred comp. And, and let's say you like maybe I give you a scenario where I've got a key employee that I really like. He yep. is not going to end up running the company, but I, you know, there's some way that I want to keep him. I think that he's worth worth more than just cash. So, yep. what would be the ways? Let's say he's making 120 grand. The business is worth, you know. I don't know, 10 million bucks or something like that. What yep. are the different ways that you could give him a lot of the upside, keep him on board, keep him vested? And, you know, I, I don't know if there's a, just a couple of different ways you could rally back and forth on what you would see the options be. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, the, I think the goal for most uh, owners when they're looking at the key employee incentive is yes. They want to reward them. Yes, they want to retain them, certainly. But they also want to develop a ownership mentality. Right. And yeah. and and in doing so, they also have to be willing as an owner to um, kind of share the share the wealth. Um, um, so in the situation that you described, you know, obviously you can just bump salary up, but that's not going to do anything for long term retention. And, and quite frankly, even adding more to this key person's qualified retirement plan isn't going to work because you, we have to be non-discriminatory. And, mm-hmm. and that's a whole other subject. With Quite frankly, you're highly compensated are often discriminated against in how much they can contribute to the qualified retirement plan. So, yes, then the owner turns to what we refer to as non-qualified benefit plans, which can be 
like like I mentioned earlier, it can be deferred compensation, it can be phantom stock, stock appreciation. Um, a lot of it depends upon, um, I think, how optimistic and confident the key person is in the growth of the company going forward. Um, you know, non-qualified deferred comp and phantom stock, we've got the same cash award, let's say 100% of it is deferred, then the only question is, you know, on that deferred balance, do we want to tie the growth to an outside index of some sort? Or do we want to tie it to the underlying appreciation of stock price, which is basically what phantom stock is? Mm -hmm. Is it so? You know, developing the plan. Can you, can you uh, dive, sorry to interrupt? Yeah. Can you dive into yeah. a little bit of the phantom stock because yeah. it's one of the things that I learned after the fact, and I yeah. think it's like something that should be way more used, but it's Absolutely. not. Absolutely, phantom stock is is probably the most popular uh, cash based because it's. It's, it's what I refer to and you refer to as synthetic ownership. It's got all the advantages of ownership mentality development, but without the hassles of an mi actual minority owner. Mm -hmm. So how they work or how phantom stock works is, okay, we've got that financial benchmark, right? And let's just say, um, and I'm just going to use this as an example, let's say the annual award this year is is is. 50,000. It can be 10,000. I'm just using a figure. Mm -hmm. And let's say the underlying value of the stock is $500 a share. Well, if the key employee earns a $50,000 annual award, they are in essence then given, uh, what is that, uh, 10,000 units that get held in an account and each of those units price is going to fluctuate up or down depending upon the underlying value fluctuation of the stock itself if that makes sense yeah and then what's what i what i love about it too is then because so essentially they don't have equity but it's nope. all the characteristics so they then based on whatever that percentage would be of the overall company they would then get to partake in distributions correct absolutely absolutely and if the employee leaves depending upon the vesting schedule let's assume that they've met the vesting schedule well then you know rather than having to deal with okay well now what do i do with this ownership in a privately held company and are my partners going to have the cash to buy me out or do i have to wait until we have a successful outside transaction. The beauty of Phantom Stock is, is they leave, they just get a payment at that point, which is you know, taxable obviously at that time. Now, the disadvantage for the, for the owner is, is they've gotta somehow or another track you know, that potential payout and account for it. There's, <laughs> yep. you know, there's nothing saying they have to pre-fund that. Uh, that's a whole other issue on, this, on these non-qualified plans is that, you know, informally funding the promised benefit is not a requirement, but highly encouraged. Well, yeah, because almost, I mean, let's say all of a sudden that's worth like, you know, a quarter million dollars. And, you know, right. this is how people, I, I see it so many times where they back themselves into a corner where they got all this, you know, 80% of it up 
and done and then the person yeah. leaves and then all of a yeah. sudden they got a quarter million dollar payment and I'm assuming because all this stuff is negotiable you just say hey if you end up leaving we owe you you know we do monthly payments based on tied yeah. to profitability all that kind of such or yeah. like you said if you don't have that payment schedule you can then fund it via insurance vehicles correct um, absolutely. And that's pre-funding uh, on an informal basis. And the reason I say informal is that if we specifically tie a, a corporate asset to the funding of this future promised benefit, we run into ERISA requirements and what they call constructive receipt. Now, if we have, if the employee, key employee has constructive receipt, well, that's immediately taxable to the key employee. And that's something we want to try to avoid. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, the other thing that I see, Ryan, is is that where let's say they've got this accumulated balance and yes, it's a phantom stock and the owner has said, you know, I think Mr. or Mrs. Key employee, I want you to step into this ownership. Well, the beauty of that is, is now rather than paying out cash, all we're going to do is a stock bonus to this key person and they've already got X percentage ownership in the company. Mm-hmm. It's pre-funding. That's, you know, it can be paid in cash or it can be paid in cash. Ca- in, in stock, depending upon the exit objective of the owner. Well, and what, and what I, you know, I think coming from an, the the owner's spot, the biggest worry you've always got is just the control that you've got over everything. Where Absolutely. even if you start slowly doing a transition of, you know, so let's say you're they're increasing the value of the business through the increased value they're buying <laughs> into the business, but you can be doing everything with non-voting. So people are right. getting the benefit of the distributions and ownership, right. but you can control it until the very last second, right? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and and when we talk about ownership transition, especially the internal, the reality is, is that's going to be a gradual transition, no doubt. Because as you and I know, the challenge with an internal uh, purchases is that your buyers rarely come to the table with any amount of cash. Right, right. Yep. <laughs> so these incentive plans is a is a perfect way to kind of systematically pre-fund. And in a cash-based plan, if 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 attitudes change, the key employee says, "Hey, thanks, but no thanks," which believe it or not occurs often. Or the owner says, "Hey, sorry, but you're not really the person that I envisioned, and I don't want to give ownership." Well, great, you still got cash payment. In honoring that promise that you've made. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just coming up with all the contingencies because the reality is we're all humans, and this is yep. this is yep. you, you can't predict. You can predict all the stuff that can go wrong, which is what you should be. Yeah, doing. and you know the other thing, Ryan, too, is that you know once the plan is designed, it it autom- it absolutely has to be backed up by legal document, regardless mm-hmm. of the plan, whether it's a restricted stock or a stock bonus or. Uh, deferred comp or phantom stock, it is backed up by document. And the beauty in the document is is that there's always or should be uh, a line item in there that I always encourage as we're working with the client's legal counsel is that the plan, the existence of the plan, the terms of the plan, etc., are always left to owner discretion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's critical critical piece of any plan you implement. Yep. Um, so, you know, I want to kind of go into the second kind of category of the family transition because that, it, I mean, near and dear to my heart because I was yeah. not exposed to the possibilities of how we could have gone down this road. But I, you know, I've got a couple of clients that I work with and I know a lot of uh, people out there have a potential family members that are in or out of the business. But um, I think a lot of the structure is the same as in like putting the metrics in place. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I don't know if you maybe can kind of give an example. I think there was one that you and I were talking about at one point where 
let's say the the family's got enough money where they don't need the liquidity event because of all outside assets or buildings or et cetera. How are the ways that you can get the the kids and do kind of some estate transfer and uh, getting the kids involved in the business via the different methods you kind of talked about? Yeah, well, and 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 of course, it's uh, purely the 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 children's decision, right? right. <laughs> so, so, some say yeah, and they raise their hand and say, "Yeah, I want to come in and I want to help you build this." Others will say, "You know, thanks, but no thanks. I I don't think I have the temperament for it." Um, but I think you know the 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 question that you pose is 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 a large one, and that is, you know. Are these incentive retention type plans a potential solution to a closely held family ownership transition? Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know in in some instances the owner is saying just like you had said I don't really need cash from this transaction, um, and therefore the idea of utilizing a deferred compensation or a phantom stock probably isn't applicable. What is probably much more applicable is to con- is to implement a stock-based incentive plan. So rather than just gifting it to the family member, we're going to say, "All right, you know, you are the chosen successor, you and/or brother and sister." And rather than just gifting it, we're going to establish financial benchmarks or parameters that, when met, we will then a uh, bonus. X percentage of actual voting stock. And again, the key there, as you and I know, is to model that out so that the owner can say, all right, well, based on what we think is realistic projections, this transfer could easily be facilitated in five or seven or 10 years. Mm -hmm. If the projections show 20, well, you know, then you go back to the drawing board. Yep. Well, Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think it's in you know if I'm if I'm the mother or father and I'm looking at my kids, you okay? So yeah, they still come in, but now I've got to all of a sudden make decisions with my kids, and I think that's a false notion, right? Because there's the voting right. versus non-voting shares. So right. if you got a thousand right. shares, you can still have one that's the ultimate vote right. that right. you can trump all the decisions, correct? Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's a that's a whole different uh, podcast. Is that whole issue of ownership transition of family members? <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and you know, as we're kind of well, just to kind of go uh, put a bow on this topic for the time being. But the uh, whether the the uh, family needs the money or not, you can shrink wrap it via some discounting purposes. Or if they need the money, you can still do the same thing where the family is getting full value or a reasonable value for their business because of the same structure that you kind of uh, alluded to with the key executives. Correct? I mean, I don't know if there's anything you want to enlighten on that. Um, absolutely. I, I mean, I think that, um, you know, the, you bring up discounted uh, stock price. I, I mean, on internal transitions, whether it's family or non, uh, that until until the successor gets to a majority position, absolutely should be used using discounted values. And and part of the the idea is, is that for the mom and dad or whoever it is that's transitioning to family member, you know, it's not saying, hey, we're gifting it away or we're selling it at a discount. You can also develop a, uh, a non-qualified deferred compensation for parents as a, as a way to make up the difference between the discount and fair market value and continue a tax deductible payment to mom and dad 
um, which makes it a much more efficient transition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, there's all kinds of, of ways of combining both the incentive, the gradual transition, uh, all with the idea of trying to tax the golden goose as little as possible. Yeah, so you bring up the the big, huge uh, elephant in the room, which is the tax, right? So how yep. are all these different methods, yep. what, what's the tax ramifications yep. of the various things you've talked about? You know, in, a great question. And in fact, I have the opportunity of uh, speaking to a number of business owner groups. And <laughs> and that's always the big question. Okay, <laughs> so you say, uh, all right, first of all, I can be completely selective, right? Yep. And okay, I can put in whatever I want. I can develop whatever vesting schedule I want. Um, minimal government reporting. Um, so, 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 what are the tax implications? And here, <laughs> and here's, and here's the bottom line. Uh, even though there, as with anything else, there are some uh, nuances. But generally speaking, until the award is paid out to paid out or vested made available to the key executive until that is made available or paid out the tax deduction to the company is deferred until that point and correspondingly the tax obligation by the recipient or the key employee is deferred until receipt okay so Again, and I'll repeat that, um, once paid out or vested, deduction to the company at the point of payout, taxable to the executive at the point of receipt. Got it, yep. Now, so, but in the only, the only exception to that, and in some industries it's important, is what's called a restrictive executive bonus arrangement. And without getting into detail, that is the only cash-based retention plan that allows an immediate tax deduction to the company and immediate tax liability to the executive at the point of the award. Now, to offset that, many companies will gross up a bonus to cover that key executive's tax liability. Mm -hmm at the point of payout. But generally speaking, deductible at payout, taxable to the recipient at that point. Which is also why you want to plan for when that actual event happens. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's one of the benefits that key employees perceive with these because they can kind of time, um, they have flexibility in timing their tax obligation to a certain extent. They can say, hey, hold on to it. Even though I'm 100% vested, hang on to it. I don't really need it. I don't want it in a lump sum. I'll kind of take it over a period of time. Right. Well, there you go, right? Because they can, I mean, as long as you're all negotiating back and forth and there's clear expectations, I mean, my guess is every business owner would rather have the cash on hand. And if you can right. slowly, I mean, everybody just wants cash flow. So if you can slowly right. pay it out and make sure you're underneath a certain tax bracket, you're going right. to have less or you're going to have more proceeds over the term of whatever it is. Right. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. So as we're kind of wrapping up here, uh, Diane, what is, you know, is there one thing that we've talked about that you want to highlight or one thing that you want to kind of make sure you, you know, leave everybody, the listeners with? Yeah, I, I think, um, of course, I'd have a number of them, but <laughs> as, it, <laughs> as it pertains specifically to the key employee uh, incentive and retention, the reality is, is that it is a significant value driver. And in the scope 
of ownership transition strategies. It's a critical value driver in either an external or an internal uh, transition strategy or option. Um, they can be completely selective. And I think that for any owner of a successful organization, they their top priority should be to develop an ownership mentality um, on the part of their key people. It, it really uh, comes down to that. And it, it's something where the key employee understands or gets the fact that the owner understands and appreciates the value that they're bringing to the bottom line. It's a, it's a wealth multiplier mindset, if you will, that ties the employees to the financial vision and the business plan of the company. And if properly designed, the beauty is, is that it's paid for through increased profitability. So they're a win-win. Um, oh, and you know, if I can even yeah. even put a couple emphasis on the, some of the things you said, because let's say you hire someone for an extra fifty grand more than you would have because it's a top executive. So you're yep. fifty grand out cash flow wise. Hopefully, you should increase your your EBITDA. And if you're even putting any of these plans in place and giving more of the bigger pie away, yep, all of that is affecting your cash flow per se, but. When you go to sell your company or to value it, when you said the value driver, that's the difference potentially between a four and a five multiple. Oh, so, absolutely. you know, let's say you're 200 grand in, you should be potentially making 800 grand on the exactly. out set because of all the stuff you did. So you should be able to, if you said the design correctly, the, the cash flow should, should increase, but so should your multiple because the absolutely. buyer's got a lot of confidence. Absolutely. No doubt. So, uh, Diane, what is the best way for our listeners to get in touch with you? Well, thank you for that question. Let me <laughs> probably, you know, of course, uh, my website uh, is there. That would be the best place. It's exitplanstrategies.com. Uh, all of my information, contact, uh, our mission statement, the services, et cetera, can be found there, um, including uh, email, phone number, et cetera. And certainly would welcome any inquiries um, or even just to chat about what they may be thinking. I mean, that's you you know that, Ryan, in your business is that a lot of time owners just want to try to collect information and once they have it, then they can make decision upon uh, mm -hmm. whom it is that they're going to bring on to their advisory team. And that's, uh, that's really what it requires. It requires someone like you. It requires expertise in, in the incentive plan. It requires the CPA to be at the table, the attorney to be at the table, uh, bonding companies, if that's an issue in their industry, it's it's a team team approach, no doubt. Yeah, there's everything that you were talking about. It's not a simple, like, just quick sketch. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Absolutely, Ryan. It was my pleasure, and let's let's do it again sometime. 